0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 476. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This week's interview is with David Gluckman, David is a self-described man of ideas. Author of the book, That Shit Will Never Sell, David is an original madman of the ad world. His ability to come up with singularly powerful ideas is legendary. In this conversation with David, we discuss his career, the remarkable brands he's created, his thought process, what brand managers and marketers could be doing to pierce through today's busy world. You'll find all the show notes on mintedart.com. And please, if you have a couple of moments, do drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you can catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. David Gluckman, how lovely to have you on the show. I was introduced to you through Jake Shaw, and I got a chance to listen to you talk about your journey in branding and marketing and and really, David, uh, well, first of all, you're, you're a man with great ideas. You also are a man who have, have seen a whole lot of generations of marketers and branders. In your own words, David, how'd you like to describe yourself?
1: I'd incredibly lucky. I mean, I managed to spend 36 years working up close and personal with an organization that became the largest of its kind. And I had a chance to uh, observe the way it worked and find ways of making it work more effectively. I don't think it came to anything. It came to something in terms of the brands, but I'm not sure that the practices lived on.
0: Well, I suppose in the end of the day, legacies are, are made in different ways, but having brands that have your stamp on the inside, surely must be something that's rather pleasing.
1: It's very pleasing. I just, you know, I love... Um, I'm still waiting to find somebody reading my book in an unexpected place. I think that would uh, make my cup it over.
0: Right. Well, so anybody who is interested to to read your book, it's um, called... And, and I suppose I don't have the bleep button on my, my screen, but that shit will never sell. Um, tell us about why you wrote that book, David.
1: Well, I I think I had this unique opportunity. I've read a few business books and I've looked at the perspectives and many of them are about erudite academics uh, talking about ideas and how they happen. Or others are about um, autobiographers writing about other people who had ideas. And I was, mine is a cold face perspective about the business of ideas. Somebody comes to you and says, I have a problem, can you solve it? Um, and the, the book is about the mechanisms of uh, solving a problem. And uh, there, there's no magic method, um, there's no particular system. The particular system is that you have to be obsessed with a problem for 168 hours per week. You have to go to sleep worrying about it, and you have to wake up uh, infusing about it. And it's, it's no more than that. I think we were having a conversation with that young lady and she said, you know, what's your method for coming up with ideas? And I think my answer was panic.
2: <laughs>
1: it's, it's a fear of, and I also created a, a rod for my back fairly early on by coming to terms with the fact that you can only go back to somebody with a single solution to a problem. It's incredibly easy to come up with six answers to a brief. Uh, I can do that in an hour to most briefs, but to come up with something that you genuinely believe is the best possible answer you can come up with is, is, is quite a tough assignment. You know, this is the idea, this is the one, this is my dogma, if you like. And um that's what the book's about. It's how I came up with these particular answers.
0: When I listen to you, it, it makes me think of Don from Mad Men, that he would have that sort of conviction on the idea and and the balls. To sort of say, well, this is it. This is the this is the singular idea, and let me show you why. Because it's very difficult when you're presenting creative ideas to not feel somewhat awkward or uh, vulnerable, because it's a creation that comes out of you, and there's always a risk that someone sort of kiboshes it, and and you feel like it's a, a blow to the personal ego.
1: Yes, I and mean, I think that um, again a system evolved which I think was incredibly successful and I don't think has been replicated certainly within uh, Diageo and that was that the most important part of the process for me was establishing a wavelength with the person who commissioned the idea so that eventually the ownership of the idea became a joint thing there were two of you working on this thing you both had the same understanding of the difficulty of it. So that when the answer came, you could sell it off the back of a cigarette packet because it was that, and both people then understood it. And it was achieved in a couple of ways, really. One is we never never had a successful idea that went through middle management, never. Not one idea in 36 years went to market based on an interface with middle management, because middle management doesn't have the confidence to um, to buy an idea. Middle management, uh, there are very, very few people who would you present an idea to, and they say, hey, that's absolutely it. We're going to do it now. So all the relationship was with top management. And top management, A, recognizes that you're gonna fail from time to time. Uh, and they can live with that. Whereas middle management can't because it's a, it's a severe impediment to career development. So uh, top management can afford And then also top management isn't um, equipped with all the, I think, extremely suspect tools that people use to evaluate ideas. I remember presenting an idea to someone who I thought was top management, but had a middle management mentality. I got very excited by the idea. I put it down on the table and I said, that's as good as, as you'll get, and that's as good as I can offer. And the response was, well, where are the other ideas? So I said, beg your pardon? She said, where are the other four or five ideas against which I can evaluate this? And I said, I haven't done that kind of thing for 28 years, I'm afraid. So there aren't any other ones. Either you buy this or um, we start again somewhere. And she was a top manager with the middle management mentality. So, uh, um, and I think these, these are quite radical, I think, in, in, in the context of modern marketing. Certainly I come across um, those problems. You know, why can't you test ideas against each other? I think the biggest single waste of corporate finance goes in testing alternatives. You know, testing alternative packs, names, products, positionings, all that kind of thing. I mean, people use market research as an excuse for taking decisions or expressing their understanding of, of a business. You know, as an outside consultant, um getting a brief to develop a new brand you have about two weeks to understand the business uh before you come up with a solution or you have a month or so to come up with a solution and that should be enough I mean people who work in the business for long periods of time should behave as if they understand that business and not go and ask a bunch of uncommitted um Unqualified people to make a decision. You know, you get along with four four products and you say to some person who, A, doesn't give a damn about the products and is getting paid £25 to come along and shoot their mouth off, um, which one of these do you like best? And those people are going to say, well, I like best the one that I'm most familiar with. Because consumers like what they know, they don't really know what they like. So, i'm a I, I, if i were um running a big company that one of the first things i'd look at is the market search budget and i would cut it in half and then i would cut it in half again because i think people waste huge amounts of money on, on on something that's utterly ineffectual it cannot underwrite success and it cannot offset failure and yet they spent we spent trillions on market
0: research worldwide. it's crazy hmm. right there's a lot to unpack in that david um so first of all i want to just lean back into this notion of senior management versus middle management so what hmm. i heard you say was that a senior management mindset uh first of all ha- has the courage to base or or, or to decide on one option without needing to have contingencies or variations against which to measure the first one. The second thing I heard you say is that they are prepared to accept the idea of failure. Would yeah. that be would that be the fair description of, of what you consider as a senior management mindset?
1: I think so. They're not bothered with the nitty-gritty of um of the the detail and and the analysis that goes into um, the development of brands. With Baileys, for example, a middle manager would have said, well, why are we calling it Baileys? It's Irish. So therefore we test Baileys against O'Reillys, against Michael Henney's, against this one and that one. Just completely pointless uh, and a complete waste of time. The, the, The manager who saw it, because we printed it on the bottle, and he was in Ireland, looked at it and said, yeah, Bailey's perfect. Well, let's do it. You know, there was no debate about that. And uh, middle management has to debate every single aspect of something. Whereas the top manager says, okay, look at you, I trust you. Uh, let's do it. And, um, and we do. And the other thing, which I think is that if you are going to fail, fail cheaply, now, if you worked in a big company like l'oreal which had probably a lot of methodology and systems and mm-hmm. and stage gates and stuff like that you can spend a million pounds before you even begin you know in, in researching and in evaluating and um, over intellectualizing stuff that i mean png i think kept me honest and said basically you're in the business of selling stuff to people in shops it's not some great neuroscientific journey. It's, um, mm. it's a, it's a pretty pragmatic, um, experience.
0: Yeah, you know, this idea of overthinking on the one hand, I'm thinking of, of stories like I can remember where, as a middle manager presenting an idea, you might want to say, well, this was presented by such and such an, an agency or the consultancy is called mckinsey or ibm or something very well known so brand name helps to justify what i do as opposed Absolutely. to coming in with some sort of no name person who is he to present to us this big brand
1: well i was lucky i picked i mean i was basically one guy for most of my career i had a partner for a bit but most of my time was spent as a single person and um i i didn't have any big Um, credibility like McKinsey have or anybody else and I I remember doing a project for a very large company and unbeknownst to me they employed an American a kind of global you know Paris, London, New York, Shanghai offices everywhere to to work in parallel with me so they saw all my stuff but I only unofficially saw all their stuff. And it was absolute crap. I mean, it was really substandard rubbish. And, the, and they were paid a million pounds, and I think I was paid about an eighth of that. It was good money for me, but. Uh,
0: sure. Uh, but silly, silly money to spend on. Yeah. The other thing that you talked about, David, and, and certainly I, I'm really interested to sort of understand how that goes down for people who are listening, the brief. There's the, there's the content of the brief, and then there's the deliverer of the brief. And what I was hearing from you before was that much of what you thought was your, or came, allowed for your success was the, the understanding of the person delivering the brief as well, not just the words on the paper. Describe to me, or maybe, you know, unpick a little bit that idea, just how much, what is a good brief? And, and how much is it really dependent on your understanding of the business and the person?
1: Well, the most successful brand we ever developed came from possibly what I call the brief from hell, (laughs) Uh, simply because the brief started with the Irish finance minister, who introduced legislation which gave a company a 10-year tax holiday if they developed a brand primarily for export. The brief then passed from him to the head of the Irish company. It then went from the head of the Irish company to the head, of the, the head, to head office in London, who then passed it down to their man in London, who passed it down to me. And basically the brief was, the Irish want a new brand for export, period. That was it. The Irish want a new brand for export uh they they didn't say well the md is particularly loves cognac or uh so and so particularly likes this or that or anything else the irish want a new brand for export
0: and this was now so now we were in the drink space
1: we're in the drink space at at least that (laughs) was
0: at least they gave that parameter (laughs) yes and we're
1: talking about 1973 so this is the brief it lands on my desk the irish we never met until the day of the presentation. <laughs> Want a brand for export? and That, and that, that was absolutely it. And um, the, this is, the, the idea ended up as Bailey's. And, and the idea came from my experience a decade earlier in developing the branding for Irish butter and Irish dairy produce working with a very famous man called AJF O'Reilly, who later became president of Heinz and other things. Indeed. But the agency created Kerrygold as the brand. And I remember saying to my partner um, 10 years later, is there anything in my Kerrygold experience that will help us solve this brief? And he said, well, what happens if you mix Irish whiskey and Irish cream? So being a man of action, we went down to a local store, bought some cream, bought some whiskey, added them together. They tasted disgusting. Ah. Went back to the store, found some Cadbury's drinking chocolate, added some yeah. sugar, mixed mixed it until we arrived at something we rather liked, but had no idea what proportions we'd used. And then <laughs> I called up my client and said, look, I think we've got something really interesting here and here now lies the key point in all of this he said what a great idea let's do it and i mean i think that it is that day that i learned that the buyer was much more important than the seller when it comes to ideas people who have the, the ability to buy an idea are like gold dust in an organization because he could e- easily have said well that's not really our thing uh, and I would have had to go back to the drawing board, but he didn't. He said it was terrific, and I said, "Can you make it?" And this is my ignorance beginning to work because it does. If you don't, as I said in my talk, I think if you don't know what you can't do, then uh, the opportunities are endless. And um, so there were a lot of there was a lot of learning there, I think, in 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 that process, which was what 50 years ago which is amazing really and that was right at the beginning of of my career and uh and that those were hardwired
0: lessons
1: that uh, i learned
0: well so thinking of it from this buyer's perspective the, the 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 man or woman who has the courage to say i love that idea mm-hmm. How, how does one develop that there's I mean really there's an instinct element there's uh, I buy the, the the man's ideas your ideas I like you the way you express it the confidence that you exude how how does one come up with or is it complete knowledge of the market that says all right no God, no I, mean, I think it,
1: I think it was basically it was um, friendship by the time, I, mean, I had been working with this guy for three years, uh, we, we, we'd won a few minor ones, we'd lost a few minor ones, and we were friends. I mean, talk, we talked, you know, when, when we sat down for lunch, which was often, we would, we just talked about the business and problems and everything. So we were two people who belonged to the same mindset. And I come from advertising, which was quite a confrontational um, business by comparison. You know, what is the agency's viewpoint? He always thought there was an element of threat in a mm-hmm. relationship with the client. But this guy was a friend of mine. He was You know, we we did social things together, and uh, I, I went on holiday with his family a couple of times. So we and, and I think those kind that kind of friendly relationship. Uh, there was no fear. I wasn't in the slightest bit uh, afraid of presenting an idea to him, and I think that was uh, that was really important. And that happened throughout my my career, give or take. And it was it was brilliant.
0: Because there's a feel, was a feeling of of friendship, but then there's also going to be a feeling of you've got my back. You're not going to present to me something that would torpedo my my career because we hang out we trust each other we we speak the same language
1: but the other thing about it is um you keep the expenditure down hmm. um you know you don't uh, in a sense for most of my career i operated under the radar not many people knew i was but we read a book in the 70s by tom peters called Uh, In Search of Excellence, and he suggested the notion of brand champions within companies. And IDV, which was Diageo before it became Diageo, came up with the notion that people at the top level of the organization should champion brands. So, I get the finance director uh, would call me in and say, Well, I want to do a brand in this particular area. Um, and, and so, fine, you're the boss. So, what do you want to do? Now, he didn't know anything about marketing, which is another dirty word in all this, I think, yes. that not going through the marketing route also helped because marketing overthinks everything. Everything about marketing is, is, is about. And I think if you're trying to develop new ideas, marketing is great at marketing, but it's not very good at coming up with new ideas. So if you're dealing with a finance director, mm. it, it, you know, it's a, it's a very different game. I
0: have a lovely friend uh, who worked at Diageo, so I'll have to ping him on that thought. So your career, David, has um, really, you were part of the Mad Men era, uh, did you watch Mad Men, by the way? Did you absolutely? I like episode yeah. did you like <laughs> yeah, it? I guess you liked to, it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, I de- didn't quite identify with Thornton. I think I probably smoked as much as he did. But <laughs> that was about it.
0: it. It's shocking these days to see that much smoking going on. Inside, those days existed. um But in, in your career, David, how would you say, if at all, well, how would you describe the evolution of branding? As it's come today. Do you see shifts? Um, or do you think it's uh overdone? Can we should go back to where we were. What 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 do you think of the evolution of branding?
1: Well, I think from where I sit that it, it's become very overthought. That but we, we have new animals who come into into business who didn't exist in my time. We we have people like brand planners. We never had brand planners back in in my time and brand strategists uh, it was much simpler when i started i mean i started in advertising as an account executive and i realized after a couple of years that i would made a terrible mistake and i got to 30 and i had a family and i couldn't afford to say well look i really should have been a copywriter because i would have had to start at the bottom i had no record so what I did was try to invent a new career for myself. And I said, well, why don't we set up a department to develop new brands? Because I figured I could do I could do all the things that copywriters did and more.
0: And that would be fun. And luckily I had a boss who who bought it. Again, a well, boss who was able it's, to it's decide. Hmm? Again, a boss who was able to decide. Go for it.
1: Yeah, let's set up a department to develop new brands. The trends in advertising with the development of ancillary services like research units and design departments and stuff. So why not a new product um, company?
0: The world's best known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Download, buy, hold, sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. So, how would you describe the state of branding today? It's overwrought. It's overthought. Have you? Do you see any difference in the way branding should be? What would you give? What advice would you give to people who are branding? Aside from reading your book, of course. Uh, but what? Else, what would you tell them um, to do?
1: Simplify. Um, make I mean, make it smaller. When I worked for IDV for all those years, we had a tiny, a tiny, tiny unit. There are a couple of us who would go off to Korea and develop a brand for the Koreans, go to Japan and work with the Japanese. Now they have kind of what they call innovation hubs all over the world, full of people. Um, who aren't innovating. I mean, I I got really quite surprised when somebody used the word innovation about 25 times in an article describing the development of a pomegranate-flavored vodka. And to me, that isn't innovation. That's something you can do in two hours on a Friday afternoon. You really don't call that innovation and go out and do massive research across the world, to determine whether the world wants it. it's complete
0: bullshit. <coughs> so simplify. Another-, so another Simplify con- and reduce. So another concept that you talk about, David, which I thought was very interesting is what you call inside the box thinking. And, you know, I would suppose that oh, all these marketers, I mean, I must finger point myself as a marketer. That's how I sort of grew up through the L'Oreal ranks. We would always talk about outside the box. And I, I love the freshness of this idea of inside the box. Explain to us what is inside the box, thinking. I thought you might
1: ask that. So I dug out a quote, which I think um if I do have a host gravestone, it'll it might have this quote on it. And it's it's written by a pair of academics called Richard Farson and Ralph keys who wrote a book called The Best Ideas Aren't uh, we called whoever makes the most mistakes wins. And I don't think I've never heard anybody else mention the book. But in it, they say, the best ideas aren't hidden in shadowy recesses. Um, They're right in front of us hidden in plain sight. Innovation seldom depends on discovering obscure or subtle elements, but in seeing the obvious with fresh eyes. And um, I thought that was a very wise, that was a wise chronicle of everything that I remembered in my career. And I remember people, friends of mine, I used to play in this pub cricket team, and they'd say, and I'd show them a new idea, and they'd say, did you get paid to come up with this? And I said, yeah, <laughs> why? Well, they said, it's so damned obvious. I could have thought of it. And I said, yes, of course you could have. And I mean, I think to me that was the the, the, the real thrill of, of of everything that I did was um, coming up with something that was so obvious that uh, anybody could have thought of it. It just
0: it's once you've had the thought, it becomes obvious. But until you actually crystallize it, it it's it stays right out there in thin air. So I love well, the there idea. Was a,
1: there was an idea that didn't make it, but I was incredibly proud of it. I. I got an email which had an incredibly boring piece of legislative information about wine. And in it, it said that in order to be classified as a varietal wine, uh, the product must have at least 80% of the named varietal. So in other words, to call something Chardonnay, it has to have 80% Chardonnay. And then I suddenly thought, well, What about the other 20? You know, you could actually add anything to Chardonnay, but if it's got 80% Chardonnay, you could still call it that. So I said, why don't we mix Chardonnay with um, a red wine and produce the world's first red Chardonnay? If you you you, uh, blend it with Cabernet Sauvignon, you could have red Chardonnay. And that's a communication of my idea which is so incredibly simple. I couldn't get the wine people interested enough in it, but it was—I thought it was a great idea. And that did, you know, that's not outside the box; that's right in the middle of the
0: box. <laughs> and you, you, you talk about this idea of failing, failing fast, fail a lot. And the other thing that comes to my mind as I listen to you, David, is. The ideas sometimes come by mistake. So uh in, what I'm thinking about in the pharmaceutical area is how many drugs arrive while you're testing for one thing, something else happens. And yeah. and, and you have to have that openness to be willing to, or you know, check it out in the in the way it, it happens, to be observing, having great eyes and observation. Would you say that's part of the skill of being inside the box? Well, it's
1: part of it. I think it's also, I mean. Uh, there've got to be some advantages for being as old as me. And but by being as old as me and maybe remaining compost mentors, my memory span goes back a hell of a long time. You know, my sentience started in the 1940s. And, and I mean, there was a, one idea that I had that actually went back to my dad's liquor cabinet in circa 1947 and I remembered something in there which I was then reminded of uh, somewhere else and it all came together to produce an idea and I think it's, it's that kind of memory um, that it was very helpful. I also had an incredibly peculiar education when I went to university I studied three years of english three years of psychology concurrently history of art history of music constitutional law philosophy and latin so i've got a lot of sort of books to draw on um you know which again is um turned out I mean, it was a pretty useless degree in terms of taking me anywhere specific but it was incredibly valuable in filling my mind with um it's great for quiz pub quiz machines
0: amongst other things amongst other things yeah that, that's it's, a, it, it, it's just, for me it's a mark of curiosity to to wish to explore so many different subjects would you agree
1: well it was just part of the degree course in in South Africa that oh, you had to do 10 courses two majors of three years each etc to fill the rest up with whatever you wanted
0: well, I, I certainly subscribe to that kind of a mindset. I think in today's world, I, we, I like to call it the, the comb mentality or the comb uh, skill set where you are, it's a comb with many teeth, none of them particularly deep, but it's the combination of the teeth, each teeth mm-hmm. tooth representing a, an area that allows you to sort of bring in new ideas and, and have a sort of mental gymnastics to come up with cool, cool thoughts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a nice analogy.
0: So um, when you are uh, looking at brands and all the brands that you've created in your path, is there one that just sits as your little sweetheart in in, in all this? I'd love to hear that. Uh,
1: There are a few, I think. One of them was... um, I I, I sort of alluded to earlier, to the one where I was required to offer options. We were given a brief back in 2002 by a sales director, I think, who said he wanted to develop a brand to compete with Red Bull, which is pretty tough at the time. And you had all this kind of wonderful observations about Red Bull tasted disgusting, the formula was illegal, et cetera, et cetera. But it is pretty tough to compete with it. And I came to a simple conclusion. I said to myself, well, the secret of competing with mega brands like that is not to compete with all of it, compete with some of it. So I've got a line, which is um, if you're going after a, a giant, aim for the ankles, not for the heart because um, it's it's easy to do that. And um, in this particular case, I said, why don't we develop a drink that is directed towards stimulating only mental energy? Red Bull was all about overall energy, physical, mental, gives you wings, that kind of thing. Let's produce the world's first drink designed to give you mental energy. And I was very excited by this, and I did some trawling on the internet and found something called nootropics. Do you know about that? Nope. Well, nootropics are sort of proprietary drugs that you can buy in supermarkets and in in pharmacies that were claimed to stimulate your mental energy. So I thought, well, produce the world's first nootropic drink designed to give you mental energy. And I came up with... very happy with the brand name. I called it IQ. And it was the Think Drink. And I had this vision in my head that we would use, uh, we would persuade Gary Kasparov, who was then world chess champion, to um, sponsor us or, you know, endorse the brand and show it every time he was seen playing chess, with a bottle of IQ. I'll show you the... Um, the, the package which I particularly liked the designer did a this is a sort of hole in one idea um and what it says he showed it to me I said that's that's absolutely what it should be
0: oh gosh it's very cute well it was a, a sp- number
1: of years before the minion.
0: Right, I oh, um, love it. So I'll take a screen grab of that, and then I will add that into the show notes so people can actually okay. see what um, you're talking about.
1: There was the second one, which I absolutely adored, and again, that wasn't uh, wasn't successful. When Diageo was formed, there was a lot of kind of hands across the sea activity between Guinness, UD, and IDV. They were, the, you know, they were looking at the synergies that. Uh, coming together would bring. And one of the areas that emerged was the possibility of developing a Guinness whiskey. And there was a lot of talk which went on for about six months, which I was not party to in any way. And then somebody said to me, look, these people are just not doing anything. Why don't you go along and see if you can uh, get things moving a bit. And they talked about whether it should be Irish or Scots, which I thought was a pretty no-brainer, because Guinness is just something that you breathe in when you get off the plane at Dublin yeah, Airport.
0: You certainly do.
1: It has to be Irish. But, I mean, one of the problems of Guinness being Irish whiskey at that time was that all the Irish whiskey was controlled not by Diageo but by Pernod Ricard. So if they had made it hugely successful, Guinness whiskey from Ireland... It would have taken business from their scotch. And they would also, you know, be uh, held to, could be held to ransom by Pernod Ricard on whiskey price, et cetera. And then I have this extraordinary kind of memory. It's again, it's about remembering something that somebody said once. And I remember going around a distillery something i really found quite boring after i had done the first one and somebody said well first we make a beer and then we make a whiskey and that stuck in my head so the first phase in making a whiskey is making a fermented product which is a beer and then i thought well that's it why don't we simply take guinness and distill it you know that's all. so and what would we call it? We wouldn't call it Guinness whiskey because it wouldn't be whiskey. We'd call it distilled Guinness because that's what it would be. Mm. And the beauty of that would be there were several advantages of that. One, you could make it taste anything any way you wanted. Uh, there was no law as to what it should taste like. So you could determine what it tastes like. You were not going to be held to ransom by the Irish whiskey association. Or the Scotch Whiskey Association. Right, because it's a different category. Uh, geographically, your provenance, there was no geographical consideration. In other words, if you made Guinness in Singapore, you could distill Guinness in Singapore because its provenance was not a country, but a brand. And um I cannot tell you how excited I was by that um insight and um, in fact, I jumped in my car and drove into Covent Garden to meet my designer friend, the same guy who did IQ. And um, we sat down at his office and designed the bottle, and, which I'll show you here. I can send you. I'll send you better pictures uh, than that. that would be lovely.
0: See? Yeah, I'd love to. That's a well. I'm being a Guinness fan. I, I I see myself in that drink right away.
1: That's distilled Guinness,
0: basically, and
1: um, I, mean, I actually made the product. I, I got some Johnny Walker, I, I did some uh, J&B because it's a soft sweet whiskey. I added some Jack Daniels to give it a bit of um, guts. I then uh, put some um, caramel to make it black. And I was in I was in Dublin a week later doing a couple of focus groups. called, my goodness, distilled Guinness! And um, and the other thing, while we were designing the the bottle, we suddenly realised that of course people might think it's a beer, so we put made the forty percent big
0: enough, right? Absolutely, so that people you know knew it wouldn't be a beer.
1: And I I remember presenting this on on my 60th birthday, I was so excited by it, and um, it never happened. <laughs> I'll well, do it
0: tomorrow. Yeah, indeed, maybe someone's listening. Um, when, you, when you're presenting these types of ideas, the fact that you presented only one idea, the fact that you had a backbone, that you were obsessed by the problem and really dug into it, and also developed a relationship with the briefer, Would that be a good resume of the types of things that you developed to make it successful when you're proposing ideas, notwithstanding the fact that you just talked about, let's say, one that didn't work, but on balance for someone who's listening and they're trying to propose an idea and they want to sort of attach themselves a little bit to your success and your mojo. Would you describe it that way?
1: I I think it is relationships, friendships, shared uh, shared problems, really. If you both understand the problem in the same way, then we, there was a brand called libra I don't know if you remember it. It was, um, mm. it was in the 80s. It was a very successful brand in the 80s. And the guy that was my um, opposite was the global marketing director of the company, a man called Tim Ambler, who became a professor at London Business School and tim and i we just talked about this thing for about oh three months on and off and then i had the idea and i called him up and um fortunately he was in i said i sold it to him in two minutes because we, we both we, we both knew what the problem was so we knew what the solution would be nowadays it's then show me these six ideas and tell me what you think
0: is- i had this lasting impression david as i listened to you both in in that story with the Guinness 40% and and with the Bailey's story um just how much of a smile you must have had as you were concocting these things tasting them and and sometimes getting a little buzz I'm sure on the way but um you obviously were a little bit of a chemist as well it feels not no, like no, no,
1: the right. nothing like nothing could be further from the truth oh there you go uh, nothing could be I mean I developed did you do you remember the peto
0: Yes, I do. Which the wine. French
1: never did at all. But um, um, with Le Père in order to brief the French winemaker, I got some blue nun and mixed it with uh, red food colouring. And we took to the French wine and said, can you make a French wine that tastes like that? Because that's what the brief is. And he... He said, well, what, what is it? And I said, never you mind. That's, a, that's what you have to achieve. That's the result. That's not the, um, what, what, what's in it has got nothing to do with it. I love it. And then I was definitely wasn't a chemist. I'm, I'm, I'm scientifically severely challenged.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but clearly successful, David. So, David, how can people uh, obviously get your book, follow you uh, listen to what you you write and tweet because I know you've been blogging as well what's the best way to connect with you
1: well my email address is david at tswns.net so um, I'm always open to talking to people they can read my book which is that shit will never sell which you can buy on Amazon Um, they can read my sort of eminence terrible stuff on uh, linkedin because i like stirring up uh, controversy i suppose um
0: telling good stories
1: yeah um oh, you never asked me where the title from my book came so i didn't I'll, I'll answer the question um the ceo of idb took a couple of bottles to ba- of Baileys to New York in 1970, early 1975, and he showed them to one of the titans of the industry, a man called Abe Rosenberg, who made J&B into the biggest selling um, whiskey in America. And he looked at it, he said that the original pack reminded him of Vietnam fatigue, of the color, it was a rather muddy, khaki color. And um, he tasted it and turned to Anthony Tennant and said, that shit will never sell. And since my book was self-published, I, I was looking for a title that would be um, attract attention. And I also thought that the guy who um, who designed the cover for me i uh, did a fantastic job because that's what it looks like when your grandmother comes to visit but um that's what it actually looks like
0: i love it that is a great great play looks um sexy on the outside and then what do you say it uh, has double meaning if you will
1: well the great thing about about that is um i never met the designer and I went along to brief him, and he pulled this thing out, and, uh, you know, with nothing inside, because I wanted to do the cover before I wrote the book, because I wanted the cover to give me a kind of tone of voice, and um, I hope I succeeded.
0: And and to sell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, that Jake put us in touch. I loved hearing your stories. I would love. For, I would encourage everybody. Go check out your book. I think we do need to think differently about the way we do branding these days. And I think the, your, your advice about making things simpler uh, in the marketing world seems to resonate with me. So thank you very much, David.
1: Thank you. really
0: enjoyed it. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minter You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: Top the